We're continuing today in the book of 1 Corinthians, starting from uh, chapter 9, from verse 19 through to 27, for anybody who likes to follow along in their own Bibles. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Those of you who have been here over the last few weeks will know that these verses from Paul don't appear in a vacuum. But in a broader discussion he's been having with the Corinthian church about what it means to be free. What Christian freedom looks like. What comes to mind when you mention the word freedom? I mean, for me it's Mel Gibson in a blue and white face paint. Uh, If you think of freedom, you might think of uh, loud American tourists. They like talking about freedom. We've been hearing the word freedom thrown about a lot in recent times in things like the freedom rallies and things like that. Paul is writing to people in a young church who are very big on this idea that in Christ we have been set free. In Christ we have freedom. All things are permissible for me. He quoted them as saying, in the, whole, in the beginning to this discussion on what Christian freedom looks like. And it's true. Christ has set us free. It is for freedom, Paul writes in Galatians, a church that had very much the opposite problem in that they were falling for uh, teachers who were saying that in order to be saved we needed to follow the law, the law of Moses. He tells them, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There are many people that think that faith and religion is the opposite of freedom. It's, freedom is 
doing whatever you want. And anything that gets in the way of doing whatever I want is slavery. Jesus came to tell us that we weren't free when we turned away from God. We weren't free when we were doing whatever we wanted. We were slaves to our sin. Thinking that we were in control of our own destiny, it, was, it wasn't that we could choose to sin. It was that we couldn't help but sin. We couldn't choose not to sin even if we wanted to. We're slaves to our sin, slaves to Satan, the one who first led us into sin, and slaves to death, the wages of sin. Death and separation from a God who cannot be just and allow sin to be in his presence. We sold ourselves into slavery for freedom, the freedom to do whatever we wanted. And in return for our freedom to do whatever we wanted, we received separation from God, death, war, hatred, greed, addiction and disease. It's not the finest trade deal in the history of the human race. So when the Bible talks about our freedom that Christ has given us, it's in this context of what Christ taught us about what it means to be free and what it means to be a slave. Jesus came to set us free from death and from hell, from the power of sin. But we were the slaves of sin, of death, of Satan. A price had to be paid for our release. That's how, you know, not that we have slavery, you know, not, not openly in our society, but we know that, you know, if somebody is a slave, they can't be set free until their price is, the price has been paid. Their debt has been repaid. The cost of sin is death and the wrath of God against sin. And that's the price that Jesus has paid on our behalf. When Jesus went to the cross, it's not because he wanted to show us, um, you know, just like this is, this is what love looks like, although that was part of what he was doing. It wasn't just because he wanted to show us what self-sacrifice looked like, although that was part of what he was doing. But he went to the cross to pay the price that our sins deserved. He went to the cross to set us free from sin, from the power of sin. Now, when I say words like free from sin, that can possibly lead to errors where people think, okay, now we're Christians, that means that we're never going to sin again. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But not only is that not our experience, that's also not what the Bible teaches. Uh, 1 John is quite clear that anyone who says they're without sin is a liar and God is not in them. We do still get things wrong sometimes. But we are. Even here and now, 
freer from sin than we were before Jesus saved us. And one day, when we see him face to face, we will be perfectly free from the power of sin in our lives. So because Jesus has paid the price that our sins deserved on the cross, he has become our sin. And in his place, in, because of that, we have become his righteousness. We are free. We are free from the law, the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament. Now, what that looks like to be free uh, is a complicated thing. We're not free to run around murdering and all of these sort of things. That's not a good use of our Christian freedom. But we know, don't we, we're free from the food laws of the Old Testament. We can eat bacon and pork chops and ants and things if you really want to. Um, we're free from a lot of the rituals and the festivals and the like we can celebrate the Passover and things like that. But under the law, if we didn't celebrate the Passover, we'd be kicked out of the, the people of God. We have freedom in that area. We're free to not do sacrifices and continue bringing in lambs and doves and oxen to pay the price for our sins. We're free of the the rituals of temples. We're free to wear blended fabrics and to shave our sideburns and all sorts of things. All of these rituals and, and, and things that had an important meaning within their context, within the law of Moses, but we are free from them today. Now, some of the people in the Corinthian church knew that we have freedom in Christ, but their understanding of what that meant was all wrong. Paul has already had to tell them way back in chapter 7 that this freedom does not extend to sexual immorality and doing whatever we want in that regard. And in the last few chapters, as he's been talking about this matter of freedom, he's been discussing this question of idol meat, of meat that, like, from animals that had been sacrificed in idol temples. And he's agreed with the people that have written to him to say, yeah, you're absolutely allowed to do that. But there is a problem. There are some people in your church whose consciences will not allow them to eat meat sacrificed to idols who grew up with thinking of these idols as real and as powerful, and for them this would be defiling to their conscience. And so he says to them, if you use your freedom in such a way that it hurts another Christian, then even though what you've done wasn't intrinsically wrong, it has now become a sin, because you didn't care about your brother or sister in Christ. So in the last few chapters he's been talking about what I call the rule of love, that our freedom is governed to a large degree by the need to show love to the people around us. And so then we get to this passage we've looked at today. Using himself as an example, Paul is showing us what Christian freedom looks like. I belong to no one, he says. I am free. So what does he do with that freedom? 
I have made myself a slave to everyone so as to win as many as possible. Now, he's not saying literally that he made himself like an unpaid labourer that had to do everything that these people demanded. But he gives us examples of what sort of things he's talking about by this illustration of him becoming their slave. When I went to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like those under the law, to win those under the law. To those not under the law, like those not under the law. A huge part of Christian freedom is knowing when to lay it down out of love for others. To lay down things that we could claim as rights. Things that we could claim we're allowed to do. And we are allowed to do them. But there's a time and a place to lay these things down out of love for others. To remove stumbling blocks, things that would be obstacles for others. So when he was with the Jews, he became like a Jew. He would have said the the normal prayers that you would say before having a meal and joined in with all the the ritual hand washing and, you know, worn the right kind of things and done all of the things under the law, not because he had any conviction that he needed to do that as a Christian, but because he knew that if he turned up and started, you know, bringing pork chops into a Jewish house and, uh, you know, ignoring all of the Jewish customs that would have been a barrier to them being willing to listen to the gospel. Likewise, when he goes into a Gentile house, he doesn't say, oh, first we have to do this because this is what the Jews do and first you have to wash your hands and first... Well, I mean, that's good general practice, isn't it? But, I mean, in the ritual sort of way. And you don't have to... He didn't insist on all of these things that they had to more or less become Jews before he could eat with them. Instead... He'd go and he'd sit with them and if it was um, you know, pork chops from, you know, that had been sacrificed at the local temple of Artemis, it didn't, didn't matter to him. He knew Artemis wasn't real. He knew God as the only God. And so he'd sit and he'd eat and he would share the gospel. But when he was with the weak, who would have a problem with meat sacrificed to idols? He'd rather, you know, just eat the, the, the vegetarian option, the spinach and risotto, risotto uh, cannoli or something like that. I don't know. I don't, you might be able to tell I don't buy vegetarian options very often. <laughs> he would do that so that there would be no barrier to presenting the gospel. So when he says, I've become all things to all people, it's not like a a disingenuous people-pleasing or manipulation. We've seen, or I think most of us have probably experienced in our lives, that person who is a completely different person in different contexts. And that's not so much what Paul is talking about. He's still the same Paul. But all of these actions, all of these things that could be a stumbling block to somebody, he's just happy to follow, you know, Watch the example that people set and just go along with that so that there would be less barriers to people hearing the gospel. Why did Paul do all this? 
Why did Paul restrict his freedom in so many of these situations and take his cues from the people that he was with? So that by all possible means, I might save some, that some might hear the good news. Paul lived his life for the sake of the gospel. And he treasured his freedom because it gave him the ability to adapt, to change, to be able to share that gospel more effectively by removing all the barriers to it. It's interesting to think about what that might look like today. Things aren't quite the same for us as they were in first century Corinth. I know we see this sort of thing a bit in mission. Uh, I read an excellent book by uh, Grant Locke, a missionary who spent a number of years over in Pakistan uh, and he lives in Adelaide. And he was sharing about in their time in Pakistan and they would observe you know, all of the, the morally neutral or, or good uh, Muslim customs of the world around them and his wife would wear the, 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 the hijab and all of those sort of things. And he was talking about this uh, American missionary, uh, this woman who came to their region, and she didn't do any of that. She dressed very much like an American and did all of the American sort of things and was insisting that she was you know, showing all of the, the, the Muslim people about the freedom of living in Christ. And they said, you know, they spoke to so many of these Muslim women that she'd been speaking to and what she was actually doing was putting a barrier to the gospel. Was insisting that your, you know, all of these cultural things need to change right now to become a Christian. Now, the Bible certainly doesn't say that women have to wear a hijab. But if you are ministering in that sort of context, that would be what it looks like to apply these verses that Paul talks about of laying down our freedoms to win those that we can. What would it look like for us to become like the people that we're trying to reach for the sake of the gospel? To become like the, the Aussie battler that we want to share the gospel with? To become like the footballers down at the the Birdwood Football Club. To become like the Indigenous Australians, the Indigenous people, if we were, had the, uh, the opportunity to share the gospel there. What would it look like using our Christian freedoms or laying down our Christian freedoms to in some sense become like the progressives in order to share the gospel with the progressives? I'm not going to give you the answers to all of these. I don't know that I have all the answers to all of these. But these are the questions that God wants us to ask and think about, particularly in the context that we find ourselves. What might we be able to do to remove the barriers? And that obviously doesn't mean compromising our faith. That obviously doesn't mean stepping into anything that is actually sin. But it might mean making a compromise on things that we might not normally do, but that 
morally, scripturally, there's nothing wrong with doing them. As Paul reminds us in the following verses that this sharing the gospel, this reaching out to people, that is what we're here for. And so in encouraging the Corinthians to live out their Christian freedom selflessly and for the good of others, he gives this illustration of a runner, oops, sorry, of, a, of an Olympian. Um, well, every, every other year near the city of Corinth, there were games held. They were called the Isthmian Games because Corinth is situated on an isthmus which is a tricky word to say. But um, so the people of, of Corinth would have been very familiar with the idea of, of track running and of, of boxing, you know, the sports and things that were big in the sort of games that were popular in those days. And so Paul takes this illustration from something they're very familiar with. In a race, all the runners run, only one gets the prize. Now, his point isn't, of course, that only one person will actually get saved. But he encourages us, you look at the way that the person who wins the race has prepared for the race. Look at all the training that went into it long before the event actually happened. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Like the athletes that are preparing for the games, our lives on this earth have a purpose, have a goal that we're working towards. We have a part in Jesus' mission, in building his kingdom, the kingdom of God in this world, in sharing in the gospel that he has given us. And that's what our freedom is for, that we can prepare well for that race, that we can run well, that we can reach out well. Now, I've been told that there are some people in the churches who don't like using the pastors using sports analogies, but I figure if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. So when I read this, it made me think about Travis Boak. Now, a lot of you know I'm a big Port Adelaide fan. and Yes, yes, I'm, I'm, that shouldn't be too shocking to anybody. Travis is the former captain of the Port Adelaide Football Club. But what a lot of you might not know is that several years ago he was uh, moved out of the midfield to the forward line and he was looking like someone you know, in his early 30s who was getting a little bit past his prime and probably only had a little bit of time left in the game. And then one year when the season ended, they had a certain amount of free time before they start their pre-season training in you know, like December or January or whenever it is and they have to start, start all over again getting the fitness back. And what Travis Boat chose to do with his time off was to travel to America to do an intensive training of, on his own initiative with his own time to be able to be fitter and stronger than he had ever been. 
And the result of that was, at the end of the next season that followed that, he came second in the Brownlow medal count, the count for the best and fairest player in the whole of the AFL. Now, Port fan or not, you can probably see why I thought of that. When Paul talks about using our freedom to train well, to prepare well, to run well, to live our lives with discipline, like, a, um, like an athlete has discipline, not because somebody's standing over them telling them that you have to do these things. You know, it's not like God is telling us you have to do these things in order to get into heaven. But like the athlete, we've got a goal we want to work towards, a crown, uh, the Isthmian Games, or a premiership in the AFL. And so we choose the discipline because of what we're working towards, because of our part in building the gospel, of building the kingdom of God. So how do we train well to run the race? There's lots of things, and I don't intend to give a comprehensive list of things. But part of being prepared, of disciplining ourselves well, is spending good time in the Bible. I've been as guilty of, as anyone else of having a morning where I, it was time to read the Bible, so I've, sort of, I've read it and none of it stuck and I've gone about my day and really my mind was half on all of the things that needed to be done that day. But when we really spend time in God's word and get to know it, that strengthens us in the race. We have God's word to call upon in the hard times in our lives. We have those verses that mean a lot to us. We have, as we dive into God's word fresh revelation of God's love for us that makes it worth pressing on, that makes it worth the discipline. We, uh, we have group training, just like on Tuesday and Thursday nights, a whole group of us get down there and kick a football around and sometimes hit a target. Um, as Christians, it's good for us to come together and build one another up. And we're doing that right now. But there's also you know, Bible study groups are a great place to dive into God's word and to encourage and build one another up. A good way to prepare ourselves and strengthen ourselves to run well is just the act of, and this is something, again, I'm not always brilliant at and something that I'm only growing in myself, of just more times in the day thinking about God. You're driving around, you see something beautiful and you just take half a second to say, thank you God for that, that I saw. Thanking God for the simple blessings or even bringing to God the simple annoyances. God doesn't, you know, get mad at us for bringing him things that are small. It's good to invite him to be a part of our day in so many things. And as we train well, we hope to run the race well, like Paul, sharing the gospel, disciplining ourselves so that after we've preached to others, 
We ourselves will not be disqualified from the prize. Now Paul doesn't write that wanting us to always be terrified that we've never done enough good things. But he also doesn't want us thinking, oh, just because I once made a decision for God at a camp that everything I've done from then doesn't matter. We want to run the race well. We want to embrace that we're here for this purpose, for this race, to win the prize. We run the race well loving God and others by laying down our rights where we should for the sake of the gospel. We run the race well by not trusting in our own strength because none of us is good enough for God. But Jesus was good enough to make us good enough for God. And so we put our trust in him. So let's be encouraged by Paul's reminder that we don't just, you know, just because there's a life beyond this one doesn't mean that this life doesn't matter. But that we have a race to run and to run well. Let's be all things to all people that we might save some. Let's run to get a crown that lasts forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word to us through your servant Paul. We thank you for his powerful example and he was truly one of the greatest evangelists that the world has ever seen. One who ran the race well and to the end. My race might not look exactly like Paul's race or like, exactly like anyone else's race. But you've called us all to be a part of it. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ, that you've set us free from sin and from death, and the fear of death, and that you give us a hope of life everlasting. We thank you for the incredible freedom we have to live our lives. We pray that you'll help us to be wise in when to lay down those freedoms for the sake of others, to show love to others, to remove anything that might be a barrier to sharing God's love with them, but without compromising uh, in sin or compromising your word. We pray that you'll help us to train well, to prepare well, and to run our race well, with our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.